on my way to, to work, I remember once, there was um, a funny car that stopped alongside the bus. And I looked and I suddenly realised there were Soviet officers in there. So I thought, oh, am I supposed to report them? This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list to keep up with the latest episode. Marie-Claude Hawkes continues her story with her return to Berlin in 1985 as a French teaching assistant at the Harvard School RAF Gatow. Between September 86 and August 87, Marie-Claude was employed as a cartoonist for the Berlin Bulletin, the weekly magazine for the British forces in Berlin. She describes her experiences as a French citizen working for the British Army, as well as the challenges of being a French civilian in Berlin who is marrying a British citizen. In February 1988, Marie-Claude started work as the Director of Extramural Studies at the British Army Education Corps at Smuts Barracks in Spandau. While organising various classes for servicemen and women and their dependents, she also provided interpreting and trips to East Berlin for various purposes, including one illegal. It's a fascinating view of Cold War Berlin from a perspective that we've not heard before. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War Conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Marie-Claude Hawkes back to Cold War Conversations. In 1985, you uh, fulfill your promise to return to I Berlin. Did. Why are you back in Berlin in 1985? Right, I was at university then. It was my last year. I had I'd already spent a year in Germany as well in between my studies. Um, I'd been to East Germany. I'd spent a year in Kassel. And then we had to apply to become teaching uh, assistants. So they said, right, this time you're going to apply to work for a British school or an American school. I applied for an American school, but I wasn't sent there. All my friends got their sort of schools. Uh, where they were going to work. And by the beginning of July, I still didn't know where I was going. All, I said, all my friends knew, and I thought, I wonder where I'm going, because I should know by now. On the 13th of July, I remember, because I wasn't working the next day, I was working as a as part of my studies in a in a washing machine factory. I got a letter from the Harvard School in Berlin. And I thought, oh, I opened it, it had a funny um, stamp on it and a funny, it was a British stamp. It didn't say Berlin or London or whatever. And um, 
inside I opened it and I said the Harvard School and they said Miss Martin you will be you are invited to come and work for our school starting on the 2nd of September 1985 please let us know if you are willing to come and I thought oh yes absolutely <laughs> I'm packing um, <laughs> so that was yeah that was 13th of July so I bought a bottle of champagne which I drank with my mum because <laughs> I was so chuffed to go back I could not believe it um, I couldn't believe I was going back. So um, my mum and I were actually packing again. We were moving again. My par- my family loves moving. And uh, we were. my mum was moving back to Normandy. She had a posting in Normandy. She was a teacher. So I was already packing for that anyway. So we moved beginning of August back to Normandy. And then on the 31st of August, I got the train from Normandy to Paris and then from Paris to Berlin again. <laughs> I got the overnighter at Paris North again. Not knowing what I was going to, I knew I was going to a school. It was at RF Gasso, so I thought, right, it's for the British forces, obviously. And they had chosen me because I spoke German as well. And I had, I had learned a bit of Russian. So that's how I was chosen. I'm intrigued as to why they thought Russian would be useful for you. I don't know. So the role is teaching British service personnel's kids. Yes, that's what I was doing. Uh, I was the French assistant at the Harvard School. So the Harvard School was at RF Gatto on the on camp. I had uh, a room. I was living in a, a civilian mess on the Herrstrasse, which is in Charlottenburg. So I had to go from Charlottenburg to Spanda, to Gata, to go to, to work in the morning, um, which is okay because public transport in Berlin is fabulous anyway. And I just changed bus just in Spanda. So I was teaching um, British children, French, obviously. I took little groups, you know, out of the classroom and did a bit of conversation with them, played some games. Um, so I taught children from the age of 11 to the age of 60. So the teachers told me what to, to do. I absolutely loved it. It was um, it was great. My, my parents were teachers. I think it must be in the blood. So um, <laughs> it, it was great. It was great work. The children were brilliant. We had all sorts of children. Uh, we had RAF children. We had children from um, Scottish regiments. Now, that was quite something. The accent was amazing. Uh, they were Royal Highland Fusiliers children. And then we had the Blackwatch and the King's Own Scottish Borderers uh, the following year. And we had children from the Devon and Dorset. There were all sorts. And also all the different units, like people were, you know, like signals and medical people and, you know, RMC, that sort of thing. So it was a variety of children. And, and did you have much contact with the French garrison in, in Berlin? We used to go and take the children there so that they could meet French children. But apart from that, no, I didn't. Or we used to go to the um, the French shop. That was great. Go to the Economa where I would <laughs> buy lots of stuff, which was French. And um, The taste of home. Uh, yes, indeed. It was a taste of home. It was lovely. Um, there were also some restaurants in the French sector. So we could go and we could use them and eat for... Oh, about 10 marks, you could have a nice meal. Everything was subsidised anyway. Uh, so we went to the French sector with the children. We met up with the French teachers as well there. 
as a French assistant, I also accompanied groups on visits to East Berlin. That was the highlight that because my husband, well, now my husband was um, a French, is a French teacher, what it was, and a German teacher. So he and his best friend, Jackie, who was also a French and German teacher, had um, a group called, they had a club called the No Berlin Club. So I used to get roped in anyway. And uh, we used to go and visit all sorts of places in Berlin. And that was fascinating. Um, we went to the Natural History Museum. We went to Treptow Park. We went, the, the best, the best one we did was the Berlin Air Safety Centre. You've heard of the Berlin Air Safety Centre? Yeah, yeah. So that controlled all the airspace above Berlin That's right. for the four powers. That's why right. you 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 have the four the four powers that control the airspace, and so. But we visited the whole place. It used to be the Court of Justice. That's where they had the trials of people who did the the plot to assassinate Hitler. It's a very spooky place. It's really spooky. It was supposedly haunted, which wouldn't surprise me. Um, and we we went in the cellars. We went in the room where they they had the trials, and also where they had the they used to have the um all the the allies used to meet, um just after the, the Second World War, and where they signed something called the Firmester Abkommen in 1971. Uh, it was a a treaty to um, make it easy for people to sort of um, travel to and from East Berlin. Yes, I think that's known as the Four Power. Agreement on Berlin, uh, signed in 1971, I think. So we went there as well. We, we saw all that. Uh, and the chap that took us on the visit was an Irish man. And um, he was very chatty. <laughs> it was brilliant. His daughter was a pupil in our school. And his wife was um, a teacher's assistant. So they were lovely people. So we, we, we went to Basque. I still got some photographs actually of Basque, and uh, that was a that was the the highlight I think of my year. That one. Um, where else did we go? We went to the zoo in the east. It's it's a huge place, the Tier Park. Treptow was a great place, but the day we went, it was minus thirty, and some of the children didn't have any warm clothes. I, w- I was always surprised how British people dress their children. Sorry, but <laughs> it was minus 30. I mean, it was so cold. We had ice inside the bus. So we went through Checkpoint Charlie, and we had to scrape the ice with our ID cards. And those poor children, it was freezing. Um, there was a kiosk that sold uh, hot chocolate and and grog. So the teachers, well, the teaching staff, we had grogs because, oh, my goodness. <sighs> I haven't. I was never so cold in my life. And it's quite exposed, Treptow Park. It, as it well. is. My God, it, we had snow. We had about fifty centimeters of snow on the ground. It was very, very cold. At the end of the year, we had uh, an activities week, so that was another excuse to go all over the place as well. Go to Fauninsel and go back to East Berlin, and uh, go to the. We went to the Pergamon as well. That was that's a, an amazing place. I'm a bit of a culture vulture, I'm afraid. So East Berlin had some had some great great museums. It, it has. Did you go out as far as Copenhagen or places? Oh like yes, that? Well, I did that with yeah. my uh, husband to be. Then we went to Copenhagen. We discovered that just before we married, I think, 
And uh, we went back after we were married. We had lunch at the castle, which was lovely. It's a, it's a lovely place with all the little cot- cottages, the fishermen's cottages. Oh, I, I love Copenhagen. But we didn't take the children there. After I got married, I stopped working at the school uh, and I didn't work for a while. So I used to spend a lot of time at Tempelhof, at the airbase, because they had a place where you could do ceramics. So a friend of mine and I, we got married the same year, and we were both unemployed at that time, looking for jobs. So we went to the uh, to Tempelhof and um, did that with the Americans. Tempelhof is is, um, is a massive place, uh, and the Americans were there, obviously, so there were still planes, and it was a very busy place with soldiers everywhere. So we used to spend quite a lot of time there eating giant pizzas and, and making pots. And then I got a job working for the Army Education Corps that was located in Spandau at Smuts Barracks next to the prison that was being demolished because Rudolf Hess had died that summer. He died in August 87 when I got married. When we came back, they started dismantling the um, the prison because they didn't want to make a shrine of it. They didn't want people to gather, gather and take bricks and goodness knows what. And they built a supermarket on the site. I yeah, think, they built a naffy. <laughs> which uh, the British troops christened Hesco's. That's right. <laughs> uh, which uh, is a beautiful example of British army humour, I think. Oh, yes, it is. They always had words for everything, you know. I mean, when I first arrived in Berlin, I mean, you have to remember, I didn't come from a military background at all. And um, suddenly they were talking about the NAFI, BMH, the zone. I thought, what on earth are they? What's the zone? The BMT? And I had no idea what they were talking about. So I had to learn all this sort of lingo as well. And I, I learned the BMT was the Berlin military train. And the zone was the west. And you had to travel down the corridor. And um, so I learned all these words. Uh, the army, they always have words for everything anyway. I mean, I was with the army for 30 years. So, you know, we were working for the MOD for 30 years in Germany. So we learned quite a lot of it. I, I, knew, I used to know the ranks and everything afterwards. You know, I didn't know a pip from a, from a stripe to start off with. <laughs> After that, I did. Particularly when I worked for the um, Army Education Corps. Now, my job there... I was called Director of Extramural Studies. I used to organise classes uh, for the service people and their dependents. I was a dependent, an ugly word. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War Uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. 
Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Because I was not head of family. So um, I organized classes. Anything that was recreational, um, you know, it went from, I don't know, uh, Ikebana to aerobics uh, and also things like um, IT, you know, word processing, Russian, German, that sort of thing. That was my job. I organized that. And twice a week I was on duty um, at Smarts Barracks in the in the place where we worked um, to look after the building and close afterwards. And I think you uh, you had a bit of a sideline at one point. I um, was a cartoonist for the Berlin Bulletin, which was the um, – it was like a magazine we got every week. It was free. And uh, we used to get a huge pile of it delivered to the school when I used to work in the school. So I've still got some. I've got the one of the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, actually. Are there any one. examples of your cartoons? That you I've still got them as well. Oh, I'd uh, I see to see one or two of those. <laughs> I used to cut them up. I used to do um, a phrase of the week for people learning very basic German. Because you have to remember, some people came to Berlin, particularly, I mean, soldiers, and, you know, they didn't speak German. Their wives didn't speak German. And it always surprised us that some of them would come at RAF Gatow. They'd be flown in on, on the, the, the trooper. That's the plane for the military, the trooper. That's another word. And uh, they'd be bussed into their their barracks, like um, Montgomery Barracks, for instance, in Clada. They really went out as far as probably the Nafi at Theodorhoisplatz, which was in Charlottenburg, or they'd go to the PX, which was in the American sector in, in Zehlendorf. Mm. Or, maybe, or the cinema was next to the Nafi anyway. The, what was it called? Doboa. It was next to the cinema. It was next to the Nafi. Until the Hosplatz. And maybe the adventure on the Kudam. I think some of the soldiers ventured to some other places where I never ventured. Like there was a place called Montcherie. You must have heard of Montcherie. Uh, someone has mentioned Montcherie before. <laughs> uh, sadly, didn't provide many details of what went on at Montcherie, but I think we can probably guess from the name. I think it was like a, a strip joint, really. Okay. Yeah, people. I had a friend who was um, he was um, a youth worker, and there was a bath there, and he ended up in the bath in Montcherie. That's all I knew. <laughs> I never went. Give me his. Give me his number. It sounds like he's worth an interview. <laughs> <laughs> he's on Twitter, actually. Oh. <laughs> he was. Uh, yeah, he was a youth worker, and we we shared we shared um, lodgings at uh, Devon House Mess when we when we were there as. Before I got married, uh, I lived on the, in a civilian mess. So, yeah, there were places like that where I, I never went. So that's it. So the Berlin Bulletin thought it would be a great idea to have a cartoonist put um, a picture and a phrase like, um, I would like one size bigger or something, you know, mm-hmm. or uh, the bill, please, the Rechnung bitte. So I had to do a cartoon every week that illustrated the sentence of the week. That, I did that for a year. That's before I got married. And then I worked for the education centre. And at the education centre, um, I did a bit of translating. We went to the French sector once. Uh, I had to translate for the British officers. And we went to the, we visited the, 
the facilities there. There was a bakery, which was great. And then we had a, a really nice meal at the French officer's mess. And then I had my transport back home with, I don't know, the brigadier's car or something. So the perks of the job. And also, um, sometimes I went to the East uh, because a lot of people went to the East shopping. It was a great pastime, shopping in the East, because we had a wonderful exchange rate. I went to the Sparkasse and we had, for one West Mark, we used to get 10 East Marks. So you could get a slap-up meal for about two West Marks. So at the education centre, they asked me to map out all the different places of interest in East Berlin, like shops and, um, you know, places like that. So I did a, a map. I went to the two or three times with one of the officers, uh, one, of, one of my colleagues, and uh, we did a few streets at a time, and then we mapped them out so that we could give that to, um, usually it was for the, uh, the wives so that they could go shopping on. They had big buses taking them across to um, Checkpoint Charlie to the east. And then we ended up every time going for a nice meal as well. Once, a f- one of my colleagues said, um, he said, you, you like taking photographs, Marie-Claude, don't you? I said, yes, I do. Um, because I'd been with him and I'd taken some photographs. I had a, a nice Nikon camera, camera with one of those big lenses, you know. And he said, um, can you do something for us? And I thought, oh, what's that? He said, um, well, I've, maybe you could come to the east with me and take photographs of um, a sort of governmental buildings and places we're not supposed to take photographs of. <laughs> and I thought, that's not allowed, surely. I said, are, we, um, are you sure we can do that? He said, no. He said, they're like places like the stations, uh, prison. There were all sorts of like government buildings, like I can't remember what else, you know, like the Waters Hot House, that sort of place. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what we did one morning, we went across to Checkpoint Charlie and he drove his car. I had my camera. We stopped. I took a photograph. And then we've moved on to the next place. He had a list and I stopped, took took another one and so on and so on and so forth. And um, went back to um, to our barracks. Lignite mine and espionage as well. I don't know. What what else have you got up your sleeve there? (laughs) (laughs) But that was, I don't know what they did with the photographs. I never asked, you know, I was never told who it was for what it was for, I just took the photographs and gave them the film, and that was it. I had some interesting experiences, I must admit. Um, we had some cultural ones. We went to the opera, as one does in the East, in the East mm-hmm. and uh, went to concerts, and went shopping. Um, my husband loves his food, so we went to the restaurants a lot, but sometimes the food was a bit grey. <laughs> but we loved going to Copenhagen, and we went to a lovely lake once. There was a lot of... A wonderful place, and there was a restaurant called Rübertsal there. I can't remember. It's one of the minor lakes in East Germany, in East Berlin. Sorry, I mean the surroundings. The Berlin surroundings are, are beautiful. We didn't get lost. A friend of mine, a teacher, got lost in East Berlin, and he ended up in the in the Russian barracks. <laughs> and uh-huh. we said, "What did you do there?" He said, "I said, we said, how did you get in there?" He said. Well, I don't know. So I showed my ID and they let me in. And uh, he went to the, we, say, and we said, what did you do there? I said, well, we went to the Russian Nafi and we bought some vodka and then we came back. 
So people have got different experiences of Berlin. We got lost on the corridor once. Apparently that wasn't a, a good idea to do that. It was not a brilliant one. My husband was driving. There you go. You're going to blame him for this. <laughs> I, w- I didn't drive in, that, in those days. My husband, So my husband drove and his brother and my sister-in-law came for a week. So my husband said, oh, well, we'll um, because they had paperwork so that they could travel through the corridor with us, we, you have to have a special document to travel on the corridor called a Berlin travel document, Puchovka. Yeah. Uh, and uh, my husband thought it would be a good idea to take them so that they could experience travelling in the corridor. So we went to Checkpoint Bravo, um, and then we uh, went through the Russian checkpoint, and my husband saluted the Russians, went into the hut, came back from the hut. We got on the corridor, and you had um, like um, a sort of a package of the different things you should do and shouldn't do, and also yeah. the road you sh- the route you should follow uh, on the corridor. And um, my husband said to his brother, oh, it's all right, I don't really need it because I've never got lost on the corridor. And about 10 minutes later, <laughs> he took the wrong turn, and we ended up in some village in East Germany. We had no idea where we were. And I said to my husband, are we, are we supposed to sort of stop? And we had a little sign that you put in your in your window, on you know, by the windscreen, yeah. to say that you are lost and maybe the RMP could come and we'd wait sheepishly for them. I said, no, no, we'll be all right. I'll find my way back. <laughs> so, and also they timed us. Yeah, exactly. You know, you had to have a certain time because if you were too late, they, they were very suspicious because they'd wonder what you were doing. So um, finally, after a, a few sort of diversions here and there, he managed to find the, the way back to the corridor. He's got a very good sense of orientation. I haven't. And uh, we got on the, back on the corridor, and he really bummed on the corridor. We, we used to have a Golf GTI, so he really went for it. <laughs> and I think we arrived back at Marienborn within the time we were allocated. And then we crossed and went to Checkpoint Alpha. And uh, he was quite smug, actually, you know, (laughs) saying, yeah, we did it. They will never know. Now you've shared it with the world. Well, there's something else I have to share, which I have to admit, and I broke the law. I'm ashamed of it. When we lived in in, in Berlin, and we had obviously an ID card, we had a green ID card to um, for our day-to-day things, so we, which we had to carry with us all the time. And um, I'd met a French girl who was an au pair, and uh, we wanted to go from somewhere in the West to somewhere further up in West Berlin. But in order to do that, you either went underneath East Berlin or you had to go all the way around the houses on the, uh, on the U-Bahn. And she said, oh, we're going to waste lots of time going all the way around. And, oh, we'll go, in, we'll go under East Berlin. I said, but we're not allowed. And we thought, all right, we'll do it then. <laughs> and we did. And that was something else because I had never traveled on the underground in East Berlin. Because when we went there, I was you know, on the bus or every time. I'd been twice to East Berlin because I went in 83 as well. 
but that's another story. And um, you, we saw what they call the ghost stations. The Gleisterbahnhof. That's it, the Gleisterbahnhof, where the, the Urban really slowed down and you had all the Grenzpolizisten with their dogs and their, you know, their machine guns. And it was like snails, sort of snail pace underneath. I think they, they were about, I think it was Potsdamerplatz was one of them. And there were a couple of stations. There was Unterdenlinden um, as well on the s Yeah, I think it was Unterdenlinden. I think. And, and you could see the sort of adverts from the 1960s still on the walls from when they'd been sealed up as well. It was it was brilliant. I, I went so many times on the U-Bahn back was before we was just to go through those ghost stations. Oh, you see, I wasn't allowed to do it. So that was the only time I did it. And then we, we went back up near Gesundbrunnen or somewhere like that. So, yeah, but I never did it again because I thought, no, I, I really... I really why weren't you allowed why weren't you allowed to do that? Because it's... if we went to East Berlin, we had to go through Checkpoint Charlie. So that was that area was obviously part of the East German territory. So we weren't allowed to go there. But technically you're still on a West Berlin underground train. But that, but for the military right. that didn't count. Well, to go to, to go to East Berlin, you ha- either had to go uh, we were civilians, um obviously my husband and I. And so we had, oh, it was such a palaver to go. We had to take our green card to the headquarters, exchange it for an orange card, go to Checkpoint Charlie, go across at Checkpoint Charlie. Show up, well, we showed our ID card to the people in the hut, you know, the famous hut where the Allies were. Uh, it's now at the Alliot Museum in, um, yeah, that's right. on Clearly. So, Either we did that, or if we went with a, a military person, we kept our green ID, and we could go with that military person. Uh, a friend of mine was not allowed to go with her husband because he works at Teufelsberg, so she couldn't go with him. Uh, she was not even allowed to come with us, with my husband and with me. But she could cut. She could go with some military people. It, it, they had such variety of rules and I, 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 it was really bizarre if we went on the British military train we had our normal ID card because we did that quite often as well I think somebody described all these different rules they described it as something like Berlinology or something like that <laughs> they had a phrase for knowing all of these rules I think it was Berlinology or something it was something some phrase like that that sort of somebody who knew all these rules was a Berlinology expert or something. Yes, it was very different. And when we went, when we moved, eventually, when we moved from Berlin, sadly, that's a very sad part of my life, I must admit. Uh, and we went to work, well, my husband went to work in the Netherlands. We went to, to Afsend, which is um, the NATO, one of the NATO places. When we were talking to them about things, they would say, we'd say, oh, but in Berlin we did this, that, and the other. And that was such a rule. And every time they would say, oh, but Berlin is different. And they referred to us sometimes as the Berlin Mafia as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, every sort of military person I've spoken to said that Berlin was one of the best postings they ever had. Oh, it was brilliant. Um 
and it was such a you know obviously as you said everything a lot of things were subsidized as well so you could live like a, like a king it was it was great i had a lady that cleaned my house twice a week yeah. it was fantastic <laughs> um because we were entitled there was so much money on the berlin budget that um they could do that well i think the berlin senate paid for the military presence they did so the the berlin senate you know, funded it all. Yes, they, they paid for us to to be there as um as defenders in case something happened. Not that it would have been much good because there were so many million Russians around us, and we were a very small garrison, really. Compared, yeah. I mean, there was only one plane at Arif Gato, and that was just um a little uh, what do you call what, what chipmunk? It? The chipmunk. chipmunk. That's it. That was yeah, it. Bricksmiths, Bricksmiths used to fly it around so they could uh, see what was going on. They did, yes. I had a I had a colleague whose husband was with Bricksmith, and they were allowed to go to Potsdam. Now that was something, and we weren't. We weren't allowed to go. That's where the mission house was for Bricksmiths. That's right. Yes, in in, in Potsdam. Um, were you given any indication as to what you should do if there was a an increase in tension between? NATO and and the Warsaw Pact, or were there evacuation plans? There, were? there were some evacuation plans. I think we were. There was a booklet um, about what to do, and I think they would evacuate. You know, families first, then you know, like dependents, the civilians, and the last who would, to go would be obviously the soldiers. And they, I think that if you if you had like medical qualifications, like if you had first aid, that, that sort of thing, um, you were supposed to stay behind as well. Uh, we had the same thing at Afcent, where we were Afcent. We we were given a, a booklet in case the Netherlands were invaded by the Russians, which was quite unlikely to happen. It's a long way from, from the border, but we still had it, and we still had uh, evacuation um, plans, particularly when when I was in in, in Netherlands, that's later, when um, the uh, Iraq war started. It was families first and then dependents with no families, singles. And I suppose people who worked for the equivalent of MI6 must have stayed behind. And total spare people must have stayed behind as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I did an interview. I think you probably listened, you might have listened to it with the guy who was organising the defence of Gatow. Yes. Um which was interesting because he was he was also supposed to be looking after Teufelsberg, Teberg. Yes. And um, he said he, there was very little he could see there because, you know, everything was top – he wasn't cleared for that level of secrecy. No. Um, so even though he's supposed to defend, you know, look after the defences of it, because um, I think I asked him, I guess I, I said to him, you know, basically their defences must have been just shred everything as soon as the uh, – as soon as they cross the border and just try and destroy as much as you can. Yeah, I suppose they had to destroy as much as, as, as you could. Our episode on the defence of RAF Gatow is episode 257. There'll be a link in the episode notes. A friend of mine was um, a soldier in the West in the late 70s, so early 80s, and he, because he was with... Um, engineers he was part of the people who would put mines underneath the bridges 
in West Germany to stop Russian troops advancing, you know, closer to whatever place like Paderborn or where I lived later on. So that's what his job was to put. But I remember talking to him about that. He, unfortunately, he's passed now because it, it would have been fascinating for you to, to talk to him. Mm. But that was his job to put mines, attach mines and explosives underneath bridges. A lot of the West German bridges already had demolition chambers built into a lot of the bridges to uh, to make it easier for, for all of that stuff to be done. Um, and I always remember in West Germany, you had signs next to every bridge to show what weight of tank could go over it. Yes, that's right. And and the weight of lorry that it would uh, be able to be able to hold as well. Yeah, you had them in Berlin as well on the, on the bridges. The, the strange thing to see in Berlin was um, there were some on my way to to work. I remember once I was to traveling to Spandau from Schaltenburg. There was um, a funny car that stopped alongside the bus, and it was um, a sort of dark grayish color, but a matte color. And I looked, and I suddenly realized there were Soviet officers in there. There were Soviet soldiers. So I thought, oh, I've never seen them here, and I thought, am I supposed to? Am I supposed to report them? So when I got to work, I worked for for the um, Army Education Corps, as I said. Um, I told my boss that they were on the road um, on the Herrstrasse. Was it the Herrstrasse? Yeah, on the way to Starken, which is another crossing point um, in Spanda, um, into um, East Germany. You know, I suppose you had to. Yeah, well, they were given, you know, the same rights as the Allies in terms of going around East Berlin. They could drive around West Berlin, so it was the yeah. In, because in the in the NAFI, they had um, a panel with all the different ID cards that um, allowed people to buy things in the NAFI. Uh, so you have the French, the American, the Brits, and you also had the, the Russian ones. I never saw Russians in the NAFI though. You'd imagine it would be quite a popular spot for them to. I don't know how much money they had. Because I know the Soviet equivalent of bricksmiths that were in West Germany, socksmiths, they were very uh, frequent visitors to the NAFI in oh. uh, in West Germany. But I think they got some sort of hard currency allowance because they were because they were operating in West Germany permanently. Bricksmiths, we used to see the bricksmiths' cars, but that's about it. We never saw. I never saw the others. I never saw the French one or the American ones, actually. They probably stayed in their sectors anyway. Yeah, they were a smaller team, I think. Well, they were definitely a smaller team, the US, and particularly the French uh, military liaison missions were, were much were much smaller, which actually reminds me that I did get somebody um, join our Facebook group who said they worked for the French military liaison mission. Oh. So I need to chase them up. You've reminded me. Thank you for that. Oh, that's interesting. Then I've got the set, apart from the Soviets, of course. Uh, from what I heard, the soldiers, uh, other ranks in the Russian forces were not allowed to leave their barracks. I think it was only the officers that were allowed to leave their barracks, which is pretty horrible, isn't it? But yeah, the uh, other ranks were kept in really poor environments the hmm. uh, the regular soldiers they're in a right a right state is there anything we've missed i think you mentioned you did put something in your note about 
uh, a wedding, two weddings in Charlottenburg, which I don't think we spoke about. Oh, yes. I, my husband and I, as I said, we were civilians. So they had rules for the civilians and they had rules for the, the forces, the British forces. Uh, when we got engaged and we were looking where we could get married, we thought we could just get married in church. And we were told that because we were civilian, we had to get married at the Standesamt, which is the town hall, first. And then we could get married in, in church. Whereas if I'd married a soldier, we would have just got married in church. I don't know why they did that. So we got married at uh, Charlottenburg Standesamt uh, on the 23rd of July. And my husband didn't want his family to come just for a, a wedding in, a, in an office. It was a beautiful office. It's a really beautiful place. It was all oak panels. and So we had a very small ceremony there uh, with our best friends and um, nice photos at Charlottenburg Palace and then went for a meal. And then uh, a few days later, the following week, um, our, fam- our respective families came for our church wedding at St. George's Church in Charlottenburg. And that, we had to sponsor them, obviously. Well, I had to sponsor my family. Uh, but my, because my family is French, the, the British forces wouldn't touch them. They wouldn't let them travel. They wouldn't do any, any paperwork for them because they had French passport. So I had to approach the French military and explain what was happening and the French military, being pretty laid back, said, yeah, no problem. We'll get their BTDs, their Berlin travel documents. Just send us a copy of their, their passports or of their ID cards, because they could use their ID cards. And uh, we'll do all their paperwork. We'll send their paperwork to Strasbourg, to the station, because that's where the French military train arrived from Berlin. And... All their paperwork would be waiting for them there. But there was a caveat. They said, now, if there's a crisis in Berlin, the train will have to be requisitioned for the military, which means that your family might not be able to come to the wedding. (laughs) And I thought, if there's a a crisis in Berlin, I don't think I'll be staying in Berlin to get married, to be honest. Yeah, wedding's going to be the least of your... Exactly. So they arrived um, at at Tegel Station. Um, I've been there several times anyway. Because to go home, I used to get the the French military train. And I I got to know somebody who worked on it, and which meant I travelled first class and I used to eat with the officers. (laughs) (laughs) It's brilliant, isn't it? And because he was in the choir with me um, at the Blue Church, at um, at Christmas we had a concert at the Kaiser Wilhelm Gedächtniskirche. It was an Allied concert, and I was in the choir one year, and I met this French chap. So, And I was travelling home, and he said, oh, just, we'll put you first class, and you can have dinner with us. So so they, the French organised all that for my wedding. Uh, but on the day they arrived, I, I was if there had been an exercise, for instance, my family wouldn't have arrived. So I was waiting at Tegel Station for them to turn up, and they did turn up. It was a bit of an, ex- an adventure for them as well. They were really excited. I can imagine going on the military train all the way to Berlin. Yeah, I did all three. So the French one was the best. Oh, 
it was, a, it was an overnighter, so it was the best for that, better than the American, which was dry as well. On the French train, if you had a meal with the office, you know, you had wine. On the American train, there was no alcohol allowed, no liquor. On the Berlin military train, on the British one, because it was a, it was a day one, you probably heard about it. It travelled to Braunschweig early in the morning. Uh, you could go for the day to Braunschweig, which is what we did occasionally. And so you'd have breakfast, and then you'd go across. You'd stop at Marienborn. The interpreter would get off. He would march down on the platform and meet his Russian counterpart because they didn't deal with the Germans, obviously. And then we'd travel on to Braunschweig, spend the day in Braunschweig, come back at about four o'clock, had afternoon tea. Then later on, <laughs> we had dinner. And if we were lucky, my husband always chose the second sitting because you'd arrive in Potsdam and they'd open a bottle of port. If you were lucky to be at Potsdam in the dining restaurant, in the dining carriage, they would crack open the, the Potsdam port and everybody would have a, a glass of port. It's another world. It was another world. And it was, yeah, time. it was about 10 Deutschmark. We didn't pay for the alcohol. We had to pay for the wine and whatnot. But the meals, yeah, it was 10 marks. Fantastic. So, Marie-Claude, looking back at your time in West Berlin, have we covered everything? Uh, I would think so. Um, I didn't have, you know, any problems. I wasn't caught by the um, by the Stasi while I took my photographs. Yeah. We, went, we were never – the thing is, when we went across, once you go through Checkpoint Charlie – um, you know, like I went with my husband quite often. There's nobody to keep an eye on you. You know, as long as you didn't cross the boundary of East Berlin and then, you know, the area of East Germany that was around, you were okay. Um, so we could go wherever we wanted, you know. Um, often we'd go to Alexanderplatz, that was a, a favorite spot. There was a Russian shop there called Natasha, and I collect Russian dolls, so I used to buy Russian dolls. If there were American soldiers, I would run ahead of the American soldiers before they bought the whole place up. Um, and the other thing, we had um, a civilian number. Um, our telephone number was in the German, in the Berlin telephone directory. People who worked for military had military numbers. So... A lot of people used to love eating in East Germany, but they couldn't phone the East German restaurant, whereas we could, because we had a West we had a West Berlin telephone number. I could phone in East Germany. Isn't that bizarre? I always got um, you know requests before the weekend, like, oh, can you phone Ganymede and can you phone such and such place? And so many people, can you book such and such place? people and blah 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 and um because a you speak german and b you've got a civilian number so you can do it okay <laughs> so i wonder if my conversations were listened to have you uh, ever inquired as to whether you've got a stasi file you know i've i've been wondering about that but i would think that was from my time when i worked in leipzig but they may still have one they may have updated it when you reappeared in 
in West Berlin in 85, possibly. You know, particularly once they saw you taking photographs of government buildings and things. Well, I wasn't caught, so I don't think so. Uh, maybe they didn't want you to know that they knew that you were there. You but yeah, maybe I've got one because I also went to East Germany, to East Berlin in '83 uh, a couple of times. So yeah, it might be quite a sizable file then. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't think so. But they, they put the most mundane things in there anyway. Yeah, they'd be uh, saying, you know, and she bought. Ten Russian dolls at Natasha's <laughs> on Alexanderplatz. <laughs> yeah, maybe they did. Yeah, it, it was a different world. It's my my son said to me the other day. He said, "You really are part of history." You know, I said, Absolutely. "Great, you know, thanks." I, I felt like a, a sort of relic from the past. <laughs> and um, actually, my son once was doing. He's a he's a music student. Well, he was. He still is now, actually. But he, he studied music, and he was doing, um, he was conducting an opera, Cosi Fan Tutti. And I said, well, that's interesting. He said, well, can you come and talk about, can you talk to me? Can you talk to my musician and my singers? And I thought, why? I don't know anything about Cosi Fan Tutti. He said, because I'm setting it in um, East Berlin. I thought, A, the brainwashing has worked really well. And B, I'm going to feel like a relic again. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.